Hey, everybody. It's Michelle, and I am completely cup runneth over with joy because today I get to announce that Chasing the Swallow, Truth, Science, and Hope for Pediatric Feeding and Swallowing Disorders is 100% done and in publication, and you can check out your copy on Amazon. And the best part, if that book moves you, if it grows your evidence-based triangle to to engage in interprofessional practice, to do the root cause analysis to why the child is presenting with the PFD, to then engage with the team to get that child to a point of healing so that the real growth can begin, then y'all check out speechtherapypd.com because they are gracious enough to entertain all of these amazing, joyful ideas. And they're currently carrying the book for 13.5 ASHA CEUs. So (sighs) thank you for being a part of the first bite journey that led to chasing the swallow. And be sure to check out speechtherapypd.com for the 13.5 ASHA CEUs that accompany it. Happy learning. Hi, folks, and welcome to First Bite, fed, fun, and functional, a speech therapy podcast sponsored by SpeechTherapyPD.com. I am your host on this nerd venture, Michelle Dawson, MS, CCC, SLP, CLC, the all things PEDS SLP. I am a colleague in the trenches of home health early intervention right there with you. I run my own private practice, Heartwood Speech Therapy, here in Town, South Carolina, and I guess lecture nationwide on best practices for early intervention for the medically complex and fragile child. First Bite's mission is short and sweet, to bring light, hope, knowledge, and joy to the pediatric clinician, parent, or advocate by way of a nerdy conversation, so there's plenty of laughter too. In this podcast, we cover everything from AAC to breastfeeding, ethics on how to run a private practice, pediatric dysphagia to clinical supervision, and all other topics in the world of pediatric speech pathology. Our goal is to bring evidence-based practice straight to you by interviewing subject matter experts to break down the communication barriers so that we can access the knowledge of their fields. Or, as a close friend says, to build the bridge. By bringing other professionals and experts in our field together, we hope to spark advocacy joy and passion for continuing to grow and advance care for our little ones. Every fourth episode, I join in. I'm Erin Forward, MSP, CCC, SLP, the Yankee by way of Rochester, New York transplant who actually inspired this journey. I bring a different perspective, that of a newish clinician with experience in early intervention, pediatric acute care, and nonprofit pediatric outpatient settings. So sit back, relax, and watch out for all our squirrels and enjoy this geeky gig brought to you by SpeechTherapyPD.com. All right, everybody. It is Aaron and I's probably favorite time of the year. I mean, aside from Christmas, St. Patrick's Day, and Easter and Halloween, but not necessarily in those orders. But we are talking about Pediatric Feeding Disorder Month. 
And I am honored and humbled to have today's guest on to kick off the second annual Pediatric Feeding Disorders Month. Might be the second annual. Maybe there was more we just didn't know about, but now we know about it. So no more, do more. But today I have the lovely Rachel Han Arkenberg, who I'm hoping to God I said that yes. right, Rachel. <laughs> yes. MSCCC SLP CLC, who's also a medical speech language pathologist and lactation consultant counselor, pursuing her PhD with Dr. Georgia Mellon Drecke in the Imaging Evaluation and Treatment of Swallowing Lab at Purdue University. So the I Eat Lab at Purdue. Rachel, also serves on the Dysphagia Research Society Student Advisory Council, and she is a member of the ASHA 2022 Pediatric Dysphagia Planning Committee. Can I get an amen for volunteers? Huzzah! And y'all, I met her at ASHA last year because I may or may not have like stumble tripped out of an Uber on top of her and Dr. <laughs> Melodrecki. <laughs> ASHA. What happens at ASHA sometimes stays at ASHA. And anyways, they swooped me in and we went in and there was more joyful moments inside with fizzy glasses. But Rachel was getting an amazing award for all of her stewardship and hard work. And she has just the most joyful, sweet soul and so we swapped phone numbers. So what is this, six, seven months later? Here we are. Rachel, you made it. Yay. <laughs> well, I'm so excited. You made me feel so comfortable that day. I was so nervous and your presence was just such a bomb to me. So I was so grateful to bump into you. <laughs> oh, you like literally because my shoe caught getting out of the Uber and I was like, oh, now that's embarrassing. <laughs> oh, we've all been there. <laughs> yeah. I blame Aaron and Renee. There was, you know... <laughs> We digress. Okay, so first off, please tell everybody what made you want to be a speech pathologist and then tell us about the award that you were bestowed in November. Oh, well, I think like many SLPs, I always wanted to be in a helping profession. So my mom teaches children with significant physical differences. And so I always thought that I'd be a special ed teacher like her. But she really encouraged me to explore different options because she was starting to get really frustrated with the decreasing kind of direct contact that she had with her students. So I was looking at some other options. I was really drawn to mercy work with the church. I was being encouraged by teachers to think about medicine. And I randomly just ended up shadowing one of my mom's friends, who is an SLP. And I walked out of there and said, I'm going to be a speech pathologist. (laughs) So (laughs) I just thought it was the perfect mix of the things that I loved and just felt immediately called to it. So since then, I've been finding my way through through the field to the stuff that I love. So I'm super grateful for that SLP. Where was she working? Was she a school-based clinician? So like she a, was a in a private practice and saw almost exclusively kids with Down syndrome. Wow. Yeah, so very specific. And she and my mom shared a lot of you know students in common. And so some of my good friends had Down syndrome and saw her. And so it was just, yeah, it was fantastic. And I actually as I learned more about the field, was planning to become a bilingual SLP. I double majored in Spanish and studied at a university in Mexico for part of my college career. And um, so that was my plan in grad school. And then I got to Purdue and within the first month had a lecture from a guest speaker and Dr. Maureen Leftengreif was there and I left that oh lecture my gosh. and was like, okay, I have to do pediatric feeding. Like that's the path. <laughs> so I completely changed. And yeah, ever since that, it's been, that's been the passion. That's amazing. 
Yeah. Oh my gosh. Okay. So did you go straight through? Did you spend time working? Because I'm always interested when people pursue their PhD. Like, yeah. did you like, how did that shape out? Yeah. So that, that was not my plan at all. So I love clinic and I love being a clinician. And so after my master's, I had done a master's thesis and really enjoyed the research process, but I really wanted to be full-time in clinic. And so I got a job in a medical setting. I was working in a mix of outpatient and inpatient, peds and adults. But I got to be working with kids with pediatric feeding disorder right away. So an outpatient, in the NICU. And so I really got to build that up till it was more of my practice. And I absolutely loved that. I was in a mixture of hospitals. One of them was a rural hospital where I was the only SLP. So obviously it wasn't right when I started. But so I just got to see everything. And But there was kind of this niggle in the back of my mind of I was very frustrated about just the the lack of evidence for a lot of my kids. I would be looking up something and trying to find information and just couldn't find anything. And so I knew Dr. Malandraki from my master's program. And I, I the opportunity presented itself to consider my PhD and go back for that and just felt like God opened every door. And so I went back full time for my PhD a couple of years ago. Nice. Yeah. See, I love that you're like a researcher clinician because, I mean, y'all, she still does PRN work. So like she's, but like to me, that's the amazing piece. And I think that's one of the things that like I like fangirl about Dr. Melendrecki yes. is that she's still like she treats, like Absolutely. she like researched to practice because I don't know, sometimes I get frustrated when I hear theory, 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 but like there's no application because yeah. it's not like that's frustrating for me from a Monday through Friday. Like beautiful to understand the concepts, but like, how do I apply it? And so when I hear of individuals like y'all doing this, like it and gets me in my joy. <laughs> well, that is absolutely, you know, our motivation. I think that's why Dr. Mondraki was such a good fit for me as a mentor, because, you know, she has a really wide range of expertise and most of her works in adults, but she has such a strong clinical basis mm-hmm. and also neurophysiology basis. And so that's really the piece that drew me to working with her was just her. She's always, always, always thinking about not only clinicians, but the individuals who are going to receive our services. And then on top of that, just getting a really strong understanding of the science in terms of the people that I actually see and that I care about. I I never imagined myself doing research because I just love the relationship building so much. But I think that the theory and science that I've learned has helped me so much in my clinical practice. And that's really what I want to share with lots of clinicians. And so that's my huge motivation for the work that I do. Okay. There it is, folks. There are researchers that are researchers, practitioners, and here to guide us. So on that (laughs) note, I can think of no better segue, by the way. Help, because my Monday through Friday is inundated with things that are plastic and vibrate and (laughs) not food. And it's like, no, let's try this. And then Dr. Melandraki came on and like, laid it out. And I was like, yes, say it again for the people in the back. (laughs) So hi, what's going on in the world? And what does it really mean when we say looking at the evidence? Because I feel like too much is placed on maybe one of those sides of the triangle. Yeah. Yeah. So I totally feel you. I mean, that kind of feeling of help is what led me to do my PhD because it was constant, just every day being you know, hitting walls against like, okay, wanting to look for research and wanting to be an evidence-based clinician. And then when I got the three minutes at my lunch to look up something, just Mm -hmm. not finding anything relevant. And I think something that I knew 
as a clinician, but feel much more deeply now is how difficult this research is to do and how difficult it is to do well. So obviously, there's a lot of ethical limitations on the types of studies we can do in vulnerable populations, and especially infants like in a neonatal intensive care unit are a very carefully protected population, which is as it should be. But that means it's hard to do something like a high quality randomized control trial because we need to be giving every one of those infants the absolute best care that we know of at that critical time. So that's one of the barriers, I think, to kind of figuring out what we need to be doing from a research perspective and then implementing it. It's just really time consuming and difficult to do these studies. So I kind of wanted to say that first, because I think when we talk about the state of the literature, it's easy to be frustrated, but there's this bigger lens too of how challenging it is to answer these questions. So something that I think has helped me clinically is taking a broader view of of the scientific evidence we have. And so, you know, in grad school, we learned a lot from, you know, other adult dysphagia literature or from, you know, adult language disorder or child language disorder. And there's you know, pretty robust evidence in a lot of those areas. And pediatric feeding disorder, as you well know, is just so relatively new and difficult that we don't have that necessarily solid scientific answer to a lot of our questions. So like you said, I think what that results in, you know, at least in my personal clinical practice and in many of my friends, is that we rely a lot on our own experience and on the experience of our mentors. You know, a mentor uses a particular tool. And then their students think, oh, well, when I see low tone, this is the tool that I need to use. But that doesn't necessarily match with the physiology. And so we really have to go back (laughs) to the physiology, just like you always say, too. So we kind of we rely so heavily on our own experience and then on our mentors who taught us, who many of which are fantastic clinicians who get great results. But we have to really look at the why right? The why are we seeing this issue? And what is the root cause here? And unfortunately, or fortunately, the root cause can often be really, really multifaceted, (laughs) which is so challenging. So what I have often found is that we are ill-equipped as a profession. This goes back to the conversation we had at the beginning before we started recording. What I have found is that we are ill-equipped to understand the medical diagnoses in these children that present and their typical comorbidities and or the trajectory of that disease. Right. Yeah, and and so it's so hard it's because hard. there's so many. Yes. <laughs> you know. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So this is why, y'all. This is why I'm working and daydreaming about book number two, <laughs> and we'll see where it gets us. But like, but that's it. Because when I see the goals and the plan of cares that are written on a lot of the patients that I get called in on, my first thought is, did we do a super quick? National Institutes of Health has a killer website, yes. y'all, called rarediseases.org, uh-huh. right? Like, oh my gosh, I love me some NIH, right? Eh, not all of it, <laughs> but a good chunk of it, right? <laughs> women in science, we need you. Yes. Okay. Rachel, we're all about like women empowerment. I love it. <laughs> like, go team. But like, anyhow, the one male in the room is like feeling like an awkward turtle right now. It's okay. I have social anxiety. I'm going to regret these words later. <laughs> but I say this because when you get a a new patient 
and you only have like those 30 seconds for a super quick chart review or lit review, then I would go to where it's trustworthy. And that rarediseases.org is fantastic, as well as some of the larger nonprofits, the National Down Syndrome Society. I know they do an amazing job of updating their literature and that information is available for free. Let that guide your plan of care. When you're writing your 90-day goals or say you're in the public schools and you write an annual goal with short-term objectives, you let that guide your literature. Let that information guide and direct your plan of care. Because if you don't really know and understand how, case in point for little ones that Erin has several little ones that have Rett syndrome right now. And they go through what's referred to as a RET episode. Or I've worked with several little ones that have Wolf Hirschhorns. That's a very rare disease. But the long-term goals for increasing to like all oral feeds for that diagnosis, not likely, right? That's where we switch into pleasure feeds for quality of life so that the little one is adequately nourished and hydrated. But if I didn't do the research and not like fancy research, like what Rachel's doing, but like, you know, the 30 second research on my cell phone on NIH, but like, I wouldn't know how to write that plan of care, much less engage in realistic parent caregiver coaching. Yeah. I think using your resources is such an important and key, key piece. And when we get kind of in that daily grind, it can be hard to find the, sometimes it really is 30 seconds to look that up. And it's Mm -hmm. important to remember to do that. And I think, I think I have something else that can be helpful too. And that I want to share. And it's something that can be applied across lots of pretty much every human. And so that's where I think knowing at least a little bit about theories of development can really help. And I know when I heard the word theory in class, I would always be like, oh, this is going to be the not clinically applicable stuff. It's Mm -hmm. so dry. But I think as I grow as a clinician and learn more, these theories actually can be really helpful because they can apply across diagnoses. And so if you go on NIH and find a little bit of information and then use these really well-tested theories of physiology, you can be really powerful in the goals that you set and the way that you empower families. That's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to empower them. Yes. Yes. So, you know, if you don't mind, I'll give a little history here just because I think we need a little background. Dr. Maladraki and I presented it on this this last year at ASHA, and hopefully we'll do more talking about this because I think it's helpful to know where our field has come from. So people didn't study child development very deeply until about 100 years ago because infant mortality was just so high. And so once we got into the early 1900s, There was a real pioneer researcher in this area, Dr. Jessel, and he did some groundbreaking work tracking the path of development, but he was one of the first ones. And so there were a lot of issues with some of those studies. So he believed that development was fully the result of the brain maturing. So that's what it was. It was neuromaturation. And so he's the one who found, found the milestones that we all talk about. And these studies were really helpful because they were the first time people had really looked at this categorically. But if you have two children or a sibling, you know that kids don't develop on the exact same time scale, even with similar genetics in the same household. But <laughs> they do not. Yes. <laughs> so, and then one's going to learn by peeing on the electric fence. Sorry. So like heads up. <laughs> yeah. So kids don't all follow the same timeline. But the idea of milestones really came from this research that believed that and the medical model still uses this milestone-based approach. And 
milestones can be really useful for, you know, catching kids that might be falling behind. But in the therapy world, they are not as useful. (laughs) And there's actually been, you know, almost 100 years of research improving these ideas. And yet, in medical schools and in our schools, we still learn so much about milestones when really we know now that those are not how kids learn. So kind of moving beyond that milestone model, the next thing people thought was that there was the brain was like a computer where an input went in, some magic processing happened, and a kid did something. But what that means <laughs> is that every time the same input goes in, the same thing would come out, which all of you who treat kids with PFD know Just because I'm giving a kid the same food I gave him last week does not mean they're going to react the same way, right? No, no. One week, it's going to be great. One week, you're going to wear it. One week, yeah, that's... And that's one of the big frustrations with theory and research is people are like, well, that worked last week, but it didn't work this week. And so that can be really frustrating. But that, that model is really prevalent in our insurance payment plans where they expect to see linear progress. If the brain's like a computer then we can see straight lines of progress. But we all know that does not happen. <laughs> one day, one day insurance companies will catch up, but I feel like that's going to require a few more lawsuits to get there. So like, you know, we're fine. Yes. So these like medical payment models are really based on these outdated theories of how kids develop. And this is really why theory is important because even if we don't think about it, we all have beliefs about how kids learn and how they develop. And so do companies and so do researchers. And, you know, they they really do influence our practice. So, you know, now that I've said all these things that we found are not true, what are we learning about kids and how they learn? So I think this won't surprise any therapist, but all the more recent theories of development in the last 20 years have really emphasized the impact of experience and exploration. So these aren't just like things that influence development, but they're actually the main drivers of change in the brain. So experience and environment are are the main drivers of change. And that means that, you know, the culture a child grows up in, the things they've been exposed to, the way that their emotions are regulated are all influencing how they learn. And not just how they learn about, you know, language, but also how they learn about feeding. And that's something that I think is really powerful. This sounds like the nature versus nurture kind of component. Yeah, the eternal eternal debate for sure. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So there's a couple of theories called dynamic systems theory and neuronal group selection theory. And I don't need to go into the details of them. But the idea is... No, I love this. <laughs> I'm thriving. <laughs> like, please go there. <laughs> I can nerd out hard. So, uh, so I have to rein myself in. <laughs> That's good. I'm I'm with you 100%. Dive, baby. But but what these really are looking at is how do kids take the information around them and use that to develop? And feeding is really tricky to study because when do we start feeding? Immediately. So it's really hard to watch that process. But we can actually look at the gross motor literature for things like walking and reaching and learn about how kids' brains develop and change. And then we can apply that to feeding. And that's where we really get to the clinically impactful elements of this work. Okay. So, for example, there's this really awesome study by Dr. Karasik and colleagues on sitting. And I always like to talk about this just as an example. So they looked at the development of sitting in infants in Argentina, Cameroon, Italy, Kenya, South Africa, and the U.S. And in contrast to most of the old milestone studies, which were, by the way, almost all completed in New England with white upper-class children. 
Mm-hmm, this mm-hmm. study is looking at kids across different cultures and development levels. And so what they found was, to me, just absolutely interesting and mind-blowing. So they found that infants in communities where they were given more opportunities to sit at a younger age developed sitting much earlier. So we tend to think of infants sitting at like about six months, right? Yeah. Well, in Kenya and Cameroon, almost 100% of the infants were independent sitting by the five-month mark. What? Yeah. So this thing that we think of as an innate timeline based on that old work by Jessel is actually potentially much more flexible than that based on kids' experiences. Wait, this – okay, so my husband, prior to becoming parents, he read up on how in Vietnam they teach infants how to tinkle on a whistle. Yes. Right? Because, yes. Right? And so like – and that's – okay, so let me translate out of nerdland. <laughs> so what happens is that the babies are – they're wrapped – my dad would call it a papoose. They're wrapped up in like a papoose. Like they're wrapped up on their body. The mothers wear them like around the clock. And every time they tinkle, they pee, the mother whistles. And so they associate that whistle with urination and eventually can basically you potty train them. Mm-hmm. And my husband and in his infinite wisdom was like, <laughs> we could do that and never have to pay for diapers. And I was like, are you going to quit working or am <laughs> I going to quit working? And your wife can't whistle. So this whole thought process <laughs> is shot right out the gate. Yeah. So like, but different expectations because that happens way earlier than what Theodore did when I was pretty sure Sir Bear was going to get married in a pull-up. <laughs> but like, you know, we made it. <laughs> I digress. But yes, I'm but with you. But that's such a perfect okay. example of how our cultural expectations and practices really do impact a kid's development. And this is true, you know, across domains, we think. So, you know, in that same study, they found that kids in, for example, Italy spent a lot more of their time in infant seats and they also developed independent sitting later. And all these kids were typically developing. They all did fine. It's not a matter of, you know, earlier is better. It's just an example of how, you know, what we do as the adults around a child can influence how they grow and change, which is actually great because it means that as therapists, there are a lot of different domains that we can positively influence when we're empowering parents to help their children. And I think that's a really powerful concept. And feeding in the feeding world, we're just now starting to look at these kind of what we call dynamic influences on feeding development. So we don't have a ton of research in this area yet, but the gross motor literature has tons and tons showing that, you know, a kid's exposures, environment, and factors around them really do influence the way that they learn. Mm-hmm. Okay. I'm busy thinking. Continue, ma'am. Continue. This is amazing. I am happy to. So Dr. Mm-hmm. Emily Zimmerman is probably done the most work in this area in, in feeding and swallowing in infants and young children. And so she looks at the influences of a v- variety of things on sucking specifically, because sucking is something we can measure in a lab. So it's really difficult to measure lots of feeding things in lab settings, but sucking is one where there's devices where we can measure amplitude of sucking and speed and all sorts of things. So Mm -hmm. she's published multiple studies just that are fascinating that look at the influence of, for example, bottle nipple stiffness on sucking or the Mm -hmm. influence of looking at a picture of a car versus a picture of a human face or a mother while they're sucking, being rocked and having vestibular input versus being still, the input of the influence of phthalate exposure, toxic exposure in utero, 
on later development. And so her work is a really good place to start to learn about this issue. And we have so many questions in the world of feeding, but it's looking like just like in walking and sitting, probably there's good evidence that that there's a similar developmental process in feeding. I think I've read the one on the bottle nipple stiffness. It was when comparative on like, didn't they use Dr. Brown's and some of the over-the-counter ones? I believe so, yes. Yeah, because it was basically, in a nutshell, it's either her work or another researcher's work because I have it embedded in like one of the courses that I give. They they talk about how certain nipples break down, the rigidity and the nipple breaks down over time and it can expedite the flow rate of the bottle. So you have to be very careful because like say, for instance, you have a child that is known aspirator, has like baseline major issues, cardiac, I mean, pick the gamut. And if they're on a lower quality bottle nipple that breaks down with use, with steaming, with getting run through the washing machine and like on the heat cycle, it allows it to flow faster. So if they came home after an instrumental swallow study that said it must be an ultra preemie, but yet you've got it flowing at a level three, you're increasing the likelihood for aspiration pneumonia. So, you know, it's kind of, you assume that it's going, the bottle nipples will be sturdy, but like, I, they're not. Yeah. I'm very- With the exception of Dr. Brown's house, some pretty good research <laughs> to support there. <theirs. Yeah. laughs> so like, yes, continue. Sorry. No, I, I think that's an example of just, you know, one variable in feeding. And that's why, that's why feeding can be yes. so challenging to treat is because yeah. it involves, you know, these sometimes external things like bottles and it involves every, almost every body system. It involves the brain. It involves a relationship between the caregiver and the child. And so there's all these different domains that A, can go wrong and be very difficult, but B, there are also ways that we can intervene on those multiple levels. Mm -hmm. And I think that's why, you know, the idea of parent coaching is so, so important, not just from a, you know, not just that it's the right thing to do, but from a scientific basis. We may not have the studies yet comparing parent coaching and feeding, but we have the studies on how the brain develops. And so, you know, these theories that I'm talking about really support the idea that we need to be intervening in the child's environment. And what is their environment? Their caregiver. Mm -hmm. And for a lot of these kids, caregivers. Absolutely. I mean, how many times have we heard as a practitioner, hey, I can't get my baby to eat, but like, my wife can, or, well, grandma's the only one that knows how to do that. Yes. Okay. Huge soapbox moment. If you are in the world of home health, or if you're in a private practice, in my humble opinion, Rachel, feel free to back me (laughs) up, please. If you go in and you're doing the feeding session and you're taking the baby from the family or the caregiver's arms and you're pacing and you're doing it and you're not coaching the family on the tools that you're implementing, the compensatory strategies, the supports, the vestibular input, and you're like, hey, that was a great session. You document, you bill, and you're out the door. You have failed that child and you have failed that caregiver because that was a great session in that one moment, but yet you get, there's one hour with that child and there's 167 additional hours in a week. So we have to coach them with the knowledge base that we have to make that the safest, most joyful experience possible. I 1000% agree. And I actually would even expand what you're saying in that 
you know, most of my experience has been in acute care and in outpatient. And I think in those settings, it's even easier to, you know, hands-on intervene. And, and I think obviously, you know, we use our hands-on skills to assess, to try strategies, yes. to figure out, you know, what's going on. And we're constantly assessing. So we're, we are, you know, sometimes we, we really need to be hands-on with these kids to figure out, does pacing work? And then if yes, then immediately you need to be transferring that ownership to their caregiver or caregivers. And I think in, you know, in my domain of the NICU or outpatient, it's very easy to not do parent coaching. And I think particularly when we're first starting out in this area, I think there's a lot of fear around pediatric feeding disorders for new clinicians or clinicians transferring into this area. And I think that's often healthy. You know, this is an area where we do have to be very careful, but that doesn't mean taking ownership away from families because, you know, I always say when people are really nervous to start on this journey, well, you know, that child is receiving their food somehow every day yes. via two, yes. via a parent. And so if we're not willing to learn and grow, then how can we expect these families to? And and so that's really where the, the parent coaching comes in. I, you know, even in an inpatient setting where you may not have the family there all the time, you have caregivers who are there more than you. You have nurses, you have yes. other people who are feeding and they absolutely should be involved. Not just involved, but really they need to be the ones, once you figure out the strategies that are working, they need to be the ones practicing them, getting feedback from you and really getting that coaching. Yes. Also, that's one of my retirement plans. I want to be the rocker. Oh, in the yes. <laughs> like, I'm sorry. Like, that's, I told that to Christian the other day. My husband looked at me and he was like, no. <laughs> and I was like, I'm sorry, what? He goes, it's the same reason you don't volunteer at the animal shelter. You bring all the puppies home. And he's like, you are not volunteering at a NICU when you retire in 30 years. <laughs> I was like, but I would get so many good cuddles. And he was like, baby, I love you. Let's regroup when it's closer to retirement. <laughs> so like- <laughs> no, I would love that job too. When, you know, when there's a baby who's particularly reflexy and has to be held upright and, and parents, you know, aren't around. There's always a piece of me that's happy to volunteer. Oh, I will hold them upright for the next 15 or 20 minutes happily. (laughs) I can do it. My productivity may not be happy about it, but as a human, I am. (laughs) Yes. Yes. And we are more than our productivity, baby. (laughs) It's somebody somewhere is now crying. I'm so sorry. Oh, I made myself happy, sad. Okay. All right. So let's tie this together. We've talked about coaching and coaching is key. All right. Let me walk through a thought process and then I promise it'll be a question. Is that fair? (laughs) Okay. So what I see in my day to day is that we have three sides of the triangle. We have the research, which you've given us insight on, on ethical implications, difficulties, and barriers in creating competent quality research, hopes that there are process improvements coming. Also, hint, 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 folks, please attend Feeding Matters every year. Check out the on-demand one and attend Dysphagia Research Society and attend the Pediatric Feeding Disorders track at ASHA this year. Going to get some good research. Hint, hint, hint. Okay. But we have the research piece. We have the caregiver piece where we take feedback from the patient and the caregiver. And then we have clinical experience. And what I find, who somebody told me about the stool, they're like the three legs of the stool, but if one's Mm -hmm. not strong enough, like kerplunk, you're going to wipe out. But what I find is that when I was a newer clinician, 
the families would tell me, oh, well, the other therapist did it this way. Come to find out it was the service coordinator or the early interventionist, and they were not licensed practitioners, and they were somehow treating feeding and swallowing. And early <laughs> Scope of practice encroachment, folks. Let's call it what it is. Please report. Anyways, or the caregivers had unrealistic expectations because they themselves were walking the journey of learning about the diagnoses that their little one had, or they would request something not knowing that it wasn't ideal, but I was a younger clinician and didn't know how to engage in parent coaching. So there's that variable. And then there's that other side of clinical experiences. And sometimes we see our mentors engage in therapy and they're our mentors. They're our person who writes our paycheck. They're presenting a therapeutic approach as if this is a one-stop shop fits all for everybody and everybody therefore must utilize it. But we don't know how to synthesize or integrate all three of those sides and pick out what's appropriate while advocating for the patient, which is the crux of what we do. So that was that's my thoughts. So what are your inputs? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is a an issue near and dear to my heart because I've been in situations before where I was a very young, very new clinician and seeing practices being put into place by, you know, individuals who had more experience with me that I did not believe followed the evidence and mm-hmm. trying to figure out how what my role is, how to navigate that and then like you said, okay, if that's not the way to do it, then how do I figure out how to integrate these three pieces? Mm-hmm. And that's where, you know, I think there are several things to talk about. But first, I would say mentorship is key. And and I don't just mean having a mentor, because like I said, I've had many, many wonderful mentors. My CF supervisor was fantastic. I've had great professors, great, lots of great mentors. But not every mentor that you get is necessarily going to, I guess not every mentor who's assigned to you is going to be a a true mentor in your development. And so I think mm-hmm. differentiating between those people can be really challenging, but is really key. And so things like the resources you just cited, the you know, Feeding Matters, Dysphagia Research Society, university clinics, finding, you know, people that are experts in this area and reading their work and going up to them at conferences, asking them questions, using special interest group 13, asking questions on forums and where you may get some of the greats responding to you. You know, those are the type of- Wait, 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 wait. Not Facebook land. No. Don't go to Facebook land and think you're going to get an answer Not to Facebook a question. And just, and just because somebody knows how to make a tick of the talk <laughs> and do a dance break does not no. mean that they are a subject matter expert- at all. So join SIG-13, post your questions on a SIG-13, where the greats in the field monitor and provide feedback. Sorry. No, absolutely. So that's, that's, you know, exactly what I'm getting at is that not every person who's practicing in this area is going to be the mentor that you need. And you have to be really discerning about that. And as a young clinician, that was really hard for me because I like people and I like to be liked by people and having to step away from a relationship, not, you know, I couldn't leave the position, you know, so I didn't step away in that way. But just seeking out different wisdom was was a difficult step. But I think it's really important for all of us at every stage of our career to really more than just mentorship, seek wisdom and expertise. And I think that's what you do on this podcast. Yes, yes. And I try to do it from an interprofessional practice perspective. 
Like we cannot learn about the needs of our patients to help guide our caregivers on realistic expectations for developing a competent plan of care and goals. If we haven't had a crucial conversation with the pediatrician, with the gastroenterologist, with the registered dietitian, with, you know, the OT, the PT. Mm-hmm. I mean, they may want their little one to hold a cup and bring a cup to their mouths, but the patient has unilateral hemiparesis of the right side because they had a grade three infarct at birth. Realistic expectations. We're going to have to use adaptable cups. We're going to have to look at some positioning. We're going, I mean, like, This is why, yes, that's what we do here. Yeah. And I think that's why, you know, this is so valuable. And I know I didn't really answer the second part of your question about integrating those three sides of the triangle, but I think finding those sources of wisdom is really how you navigate that. You know, even after, you know, several years of seeing these, these type of patients, I still run into new things all the time or situations where I, I don't know what to do. And having resources or people that I can go back to and know that I can trust is how I figure out how to integrate those things. So when I have a situation that is really challenging, um, I'm not just sitting there by myself trying to figure it out. Even if, you know, like I mentioned at the beginning, I have done work in a rural hospital where I was literally the only SLP. And so I didn't have anyone. That was my CF. Yes. Sorry, my CF was a rural hospital and my CF supervisor came in to sell me Mary Kay and sign up. (laughs) So like I bought a lot of Mary Kay, but like Yeah, so so I wasn't physically, you know, I didn't physically have someone there to bounce ideas off of, but you know, I was a part of SIG 13 and I could read online and I read in the journals and I, you know, had mentors who I could talk to without obviously disclosing any PHI, but in abstract terms. And and that was really, really key to be able to navigate those situations where it's hard to integrate the three sides of the triangle. So that's that's how I do it, is I, you know, use the information I know and the resources and people that I have and have built that network and I'm continuing to build that network with things like, you know, this conversation. Okay. So this gets me back to an episode I just recorded recently. And this is why, guys, this is why we, I I have all these different topics because I had Brooke Bielman on. Do you know Brooke Bielman is a clinician out of Colorado? She focuses on head and neck cancer, heavily involved with like dysphagia outreach project and tactus. I think that is the name of the company, but specifically like lymphedema treatment Uh and it's, and she's doing research on it, which is really, really cool. But we just did an episode on, I think it came out in March on um, servant leadership. Oh yeah. And like one of the components of leading is being able to ask crucial conversations Mm -hmm. or crucial questions to lead to crucial conversations. But like, that's just it. Like, how you engage in these conversations and how you're an active listener and which is not natural for, it's hard for me because I, I do have ADD and ADHD. So like, as y'all are talking, as people are talking to me, like I have my one thought goes here, another thought goes here and I'm like, hold the thread, hold the thread, (laughs) like mentoring myself in my head. But that is key is how you ask questions. Yeah. And not being afraid to ask questions. You know, this is an area of practice where 
like I mentioned before, it's difficult to do research and there are not a whole lot of gold standards in what we're doing. And so we have to ask questions and we have to be okay with approaching all the stakeholders, like you said. Obviously, the family being the, the core, the heart of that, but then also the gastroenterologist, the pediatrician, the every member of that team. And not being afraid to ask those questions and be open to learning is so important. And knowing your value on the team, too, that you're bringing something to this that no one else is and that that's really powerful. And that's what we can yes. use this science to, to do is to, is to bring our, our piece of the puzzle because that's really you know, humans are endlessly complicated. And the more I do research, the more I know that I don't know. And so we have to be okay with with asking questions and also making adjustments midstream when we need to. I have found there's so much power in saying, all right, darling, I don't know the answer to this, but give me some time and I'm going to find the person who knows the answer. Absolutely. And, and when, and if you say it like that, I mean, yes, we should each be the subject matter expert of the child that we are working with, of the case that we're called in. Like you are bringing your experiences and that component to that case, which sounds very sterile because it is a tiny mm-hmm. life, but there we are. However, it's okay and empowering to say, I don't know, but you know what? I think I know who will. So let me get back to you. And I bring back the information. Also, one thing that I have shifted over the course of my career, I say that as I touch my forehead and think, when is my next appointment to get my forehead smoothed? (laughs) But what I have started doing is maybe slightly overwhelming the parents with information, but I try not to. But I take the actual physical documents to the parent or I give them a website or I guide them through. I mean, like Feeding Matters has the, it takes two, they have the partnership, the mentorship that's for free. And so like I connect them with the people that can support them when I'm not there. Yes. Because I'm not there all the time. And as much as I want to be present for them to support them, I, my priority is being present for Pax Dawson at home. Mm -hmm. So also we have to set that healthy boundary and I'm willing to bet for clinicians in the NICU and in early intervention, that's exceedingly difficult because you're there at a critical period. Yeah, and it is a lot to handle. And I think looking at, you know, coming coming back again to those theories of how our brains work, you know, our environments affect us our whole life. You know, it's not just in those first couple years of life that our environment and our experiences have deep influences on the way that we think and learn and grow. And adverse so, childhood experiences, they have a word. It's called an ACE, adverse childhood experiences. Yes. And the more you have, the more it results in long-term. Sorry, we did an episode on that too. I, I listened to it. <laughs> I, yeah, I listened to that one recently. Yeah. Oh, my girlfriend Megan's amazing. <laughs> yeah. And so that's an example Sorry. of just kind of the interprofessional learning that can happen. You know, the, the science of that is becoming more and more robust and, and we can apply that mm-hmm. in ways to you know, to our work. And it's, yeah, really powerful. And and we have to think about these things, like you said, for ourselves, too, we're, we're dealing with heavy things. And, you know, we our therapeutic yes. presence is not only key, but also can be affected by so many other things. So, you know, knowing our deep breathing exercises, having our resources that support us and help us deal with all this is is also important for the family and child's development. 
This may or may not be why I spent 10 minutes this morning trying to find a yoga studio that would fit in with my schedule. I love it. Yeah. I guess. Yeah. Okay. We have 10 minutes, theoretically, uh-huh. and I just really want to geek out. Can you just tell me some of your favorite research articles or something that you read and you were just like, oh my God, that's cool because like, I love that stuff. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's hard to even know where to start. There's so many good ones. So I think work by Karen Adolph and her colleagues is just fascinating to me. That's, you know, in the gross motor development literature. So it may feel like a bit of a stretch, but that's, she was part of that group that did the cross-cultural study of sitting and the kind of work that they're doing, looking at, you know, the different influences on how an infant and toddler learn is just completely and totally fascinating how they how kids use social information to guide their action. Um, There's lots of stuff there. And also another one I said earlier, but more specifically, there's a couple papers by Dr. Zimmerman that are fascinating. And there's one that she wrote actually in collaboration with Dr. Malignocchi and a couple other fantastic researchers on motor learning and neuroplasticity. And it's really a very clinical paper that gives specific Mm -hmm. examples and specific information on learning motor skills. And I mean, I go back to that paper literally all the time. I mean, all the time. There's tables in it on dynamic feeding and lots of interesting stuff. So that's one I would definitely recommend. I think it's it's an AJSLP, I believe, motor learning, neuroplasticity, and strength and skill training. She's beautiful. Sorry, you're saying all these things and I'm like emailing myself links and hyperlinks while we're doing this because when I wake up at two o'clock in the morning, this is where I'm like, oh yeah, let me read this. Okay, yes, Yeah. continue. I mean, there's just so many. Those are definitely some places to start. And then also just reading any of the classics. So like the early ultrasound papers are so powerful and things on chewing that, you know, just some of those papers that have been around for 20 years are still really key and and fascinating. So you say chewing and I'm like, (laughs) this is the danger zone. It is. It is. So rock us with, so Rachel is studying under Dr. Melendrecki. Is that how that's phrased? She's your supervisor or mentor. Mentor. Yes. At the Purdue I Eat Lab. Y'all, they have a delightful, fun Instagram page. Y'all make me want to move to the cold and like join the party. That would be life goals to get a PhD there, but like it's really cold and snowy and the boys are at a really good school. (laughs) So like meh. (laughs) But also we still have 20 years on a mortgage. So like go team. But the Purdue IE lab and y'all are doing some amazing things. And when Dr. Melendrecki came on and was like, what we know is that the mastication patterns can evolve until a child is 12 years of age. It was like <laughs> my brain exploded. And so, yeah, so that's, it has given me hope. Yeah. <laughs> Talk to that us. That is the work that I'm just kind of wrapping up right now. I presented on, on that study last year at DRS and I'm currently writing up manuscript and getting, trying to get it out. But it is really fascinating. So, you know, my clinical interest is really in um, that early development from zero to two, but we don't know a lot about the time course in later development. And so that was really the place where I started with my research was looking at older kids and then, you know, I'm planning to work backwards. So my dissertation is on infants, but yeah, so I did this study with Dr. Melandraki and several of our other colleagues looking at typical development of neurophysiology 
in the muscles around the mouth and submental area. And, um, you know, what everyone has thought for a long time is that swallowing specifically and the things associated with swallowing, like chewing, are pretty mature by the age of five. But there's really only a couple studies that actually looked at it. And they had a lot of useful information, but were used, only looked at specific muscles or specific foods. And so what we tried to do is we looked at, we had six different locations for our SEMG measurements. We looked at muscle activity in six, six spots. And Where? so we had- Can you kind of describe yeah, it? So we looked at the left and right side of the upper lips, the left and right side of the lower lips, and then the left and right of the submental area under the chin. So what would be involved in like hyolaryngeal excursion, stuff like that. And what we found was that consistent with those theories that I talked about earlier about how you know kids continue to develop and use their experiences, we found that there was continued refinement even up to the age of 12, which is very interesting. And that's in typically developing children. We do not need to have a rotary true by four, so we don't need to shove plastic things in kids' mouths and be like, circle two, circle two, circle two, because you know what? It's not a thing. And, and uh, I was very happy. And we have a lot of questions, you know, about exactly how this works, you know, which muscles are more important and what is the neural pathway? And there's a lot of questions, but the kind of the takeaway was that, you know, even between the ages of seven and 12, we're seeing continuing refinement in how efficient kids are, in how you know, their timing in the muscular effort they put forward. And so it's an area where we need a lot more work, but it's really interesting. And, you know, what you said about like, what does a kid need? I, I'll never forget. I was at a conference and for young investigators and I had the immense. Wait, 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 wait. It's called a conference for young <laughs> it was, investigators. It was, I think it's called, the, it's from DRS and it was, I think called the Institute for Education, but it was all young investigators for this two-day conference where we got mentors and it was fantastic as a researcher, but... I'm sorry. I've seen too many Pink Panthers movies. So when you say young investigators, I'm seeing like a (laughs) trench coat with like a beret and like a very inappropriate mustache. And I'm like, oh, Rachel, that's not a good look. No, this is (laughs) young research investigators. (laughs) Okay. All right. Well, I mean, Pink Panther is awesome, but like, okay. (laughs) But I had the immense honor and pleasure to be one of the mentees of Dr. Joan Arvidson. Oh and, my God, you're my dream. Oh, she's just <laughs> incredible. And even, even more amazing than you can imagine. Um, it was, it was such a powerful two days. But one of the things she said, we were, you know, just talking and one of the other young women in our group was talking about a kid who was swallowing their little ravioli pieces whole and how they were trying to work on that. And Dr. Arvidson said, well, is it causing any issues? And researcher was like, well, what do you mean? She's like, are they choking? And she said, well, no. She's like, okay, are they fatiguing really quickly? And she said, well, no. And she's like, so why do you need to change that? And I was like, oh, my goodness. (laughs) What a different way of thinking about what is functional. Like, okay, really thinking, what are the consequences of this? And, and, And do we need to intervene? And that's can be a really hard question. But I just I'll never forget that conversation. Because it was like, oh, Oh, I really, I wonder. When she was talking about laryngopharyngeal reflux, Mm -hmm. she called it pharyngolaryngeal reflux or something like that. She flipped Uh the narrative one time when I saw her talk and I was like, wait, fix my brain. But she was like, it starts here and goes here. Clearly we're calling it backwards. (laughs) And I was like, I was like, but she said it just like, obviously. And then everybody in the room was like, 
Oh, <laughs> she just like mic dropped. And we're like, yeah. Oh, we're wrong. And I think <laughs> like, this kind of brings us full circle because it's like people like her who have the wisdom from the years of clinical experience and research and respect for her yes. patients. Those are the people that we all need to be learning from and, you know, continuing to to look at their talks and their work. And it's such a gift to our field to have people like her with so much experience. And, you know, I think that's such a such a gift to our families is to to pay attention to who those people are and really learn from them. Yes. Oh my god, this is going to be you. Also, wait, you never told us what was the oh. award that you got. Oh, so it was I was hoping you'd forget about that, but <laughs> no. I I was one of the new century scholars for the Ash Foundation. So they select several PhD students every year who have, you know, potential to have a positive impact on students in the future. So that was that was what I was honored to receive that night. So let me explain this. You are doing amazing research and you are doing it with grace and strength and so much joy that it's infectious for those. And not <laughs> infectious is not a good <laughs> word. It is I mean, hell, I'm going to say it. It's joyfully, positively infectious, contagious for everybody around. That's still a bad word, but y'all know what I'm getting at. <laughs> and I look forward to seeing what you do for our field and propel us forward. You're very kind. I, I love what I do. I really do. So Yeah. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Okay. Folks, we could talk all freaking day, but like both of us have to go and I really have to pee because it's like, oh, just wait. One day when you're on the other side yes. and you have given birth a couple times, like, eh, sneeze pee's a legit thing. <laughs> <laughs> so like on that note, I know folks are going to want to talk to you and ask you questions. So how can they reach you? Yeah. The best way to get in touch with me directly is to email me. So H-A-H-N-R at Purdue.edu. You can absolutely email me. Or like you mentioned, I am on our lab social media all the time. So the imaging evaluation and treatment of swallowing lab, you can look for us under ie.lab and I'll see that information as well. So I'm happy to talk with anyone. Excellent. Excellent. Okay. Well, folks, you heard it here. And for everybody out there, some of our favorite resources just to give you supports this month because it is Pediatric Feeding Disorder Awareness Month. We are here today because of the volume of work of Feeding Matters. If you are in need of, if you're a caregiver listening and you need a mentor, reach out to them. They have a It Takes Two mentorship program that they will partner you with for free. Folks, I know that they are doing a significant amount of work with their learning library. And I do believe there might even be some supports with an association with Dysphagia Research Society coming down the pipeline. So be sure to check that out. And If you're looking for, if you're a caregiver and you have a patient that's in need, like the family can't cover the formulas, or maybe there's a back order on kangaroo joey, or they need transition crackers, like the ones by Dr. Rava with Savories, then the Spatial Outreach Project, they're there to support you and that patient for free. So I give credit where it's due. There are some amazing organizations. Oy vey. Um, National Foundation of Swallowing Disorders. And they've even started, what's it? Tiny Eaters. I think that's the name of the email that they send out. They've even started parent support groups as well. And y'all, there are resources there. Mm-hmm. So feel supported. 
know that everybody's grateful for what you're doing. Also, as always, check us out, First Bite Podcast on Instagram, First Bite Podcast on Facebook land. We love it when you log into Apple iTunes and hit us up with five stars. And I do believe at the end of this month, we'll be giving away Chasing the Swallow, Truth, Science, Hope for Pediatric Feeding and Swallowing Disorders that is celebrating its one-year anniversary. Oh my gosh, I can't believe it's been a year since I published that sucker, but we did it. And I think I'm down three of the 20 pounds that (laughs) I put on writing it. So like, yes, (laughs) but oh, it definitely looks different, but we'll be giving that away at the end of the month as well as the gift certificate for the 13 and a half hours of ASHA continuing as it's associated with it. So everybody that's listening, know you are appreciated. And Rachel, thank you for coming on. Thank you for having me. It's been a delight. Feeding Matters guides system-wide changes by uniting caregivers, professionals, and community partners under the Pediatric Feeding Disorder Alliance. So what is this alliance? The Alliance is an open access collaborative community focused on achieving strategic goals within three focus areas, education, advocacy, and research. So who is the Alliance? It's you. The Alliance is open to any person passionate about improving care for children with a pediatric feeding disorder. To date, 187 professionals, caregivers, and partners have joined the Alliance. You can join today by visiting the Feeding Matters website at www.feedingmatters.org. Click on PFD Alliance tab and sign up today. Change is possible when we work together. That's a wrap, folks. Once again, thank you for listening to First Bite, fed, fun, and functional. I'm your humble but yet sassy host, Michelle Dawson, the All Things Peds SLP. This podcast is part of a course offered for continuing education through speechtherapypd.com. Please check out the website if you'd like to learn more about CEU opportunities for this episode, as well as the ones that are archived. And as always, remember, feed your mind, feed your soul, be kind, and feed those babies. Hey, so it's Michelle Dawson here, and I need to lay out my disclosure statements. So uh, if you ever wondered how bad my ADD, ADHD, and lack of sleep Monday through Monday actually is, well, here you go. These are my non-financial disclosure statements. I volunteer with Feeding Matters. I'm a former treasurer with the Council of State Association Presidents. I'm a past president with the South Carolina Speech Language Hearing Association. I am a current member of both ASHA and SCISHA. And for this year, for 2021, I volunteered for the Pediatric Feeding Disorder Planning Committee for the ASHA 2021 convention. My financial disclosures All right. So I receive compensation for first bite presentations, as well as talking teletherapy and understanding dysphagia from speechtherapypd.com. I also receive royalties from speechtherapypd.com for ongoing webinars that I have on their website, as well as compensation from PESI Incorporate for a lecture course that 
a webinar that I have on their website as well. I am coordinator for clinical education and clinical assistant professor for the Masters of Speech Language Pathology program at Francis Marion University in Florence, South Carolina, for which I receive an annual salary. I also receive royalties from the sale of my book, Chasing the Swallow, Truth, Science, and Hope for Pediatric Feeding and Swallowing Disorders, that I self-published and is available on Amazon. And I do receive royalties from the accompanying 13 and a half hour CEU for the book from speechtherapypd.com. So yeah, I stay pretty busy, but those are my financial and non-financial disclosures. If you ever have any questions, please feel free to reach out. All right. Thanks y'all. Bye.